Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abu, huh? Well, Tamsin and Dan read the paper on June 5th, 2023. Yeah, you get the... Yes, 2023. Yes, here we are. Well, it's confusing. It's not confusing to me. Yeah, I mean, time seems to fly. I understand, but you've had but six months. But sometimes time stands still. No. <laughs> and uh, in many ways, it's amazing that it's 2023. And uh, in many ways, I can't believe it still is 2020. Right, snap out of it, will you? We'll All right. have to do the podcast. I'm there. Okay. So, uh, yeah, another beautiful day. We've had several beautiful days in a row, but not enough rain for you, I know. We need more rain. No, yeah, we really, really need rain. Well, we can't do anything about that. There's a lot we can control. We can do the nude and rain dance. You can do the nude and rain dance, yes. That will be up to you. You're in charge of that. It's your department. I look forward to that. Uh, so another busy week. I don't know. We have new neighbors. Another busy week. In, uh, I have to think about it. Paradise. And we saw two movies in a sense, two movies, two films, one in the movie theaters. Um, we saw You Hurt My Feelings in Doylestown, where we are members. Don't rub it in. <laughs> you Hurt My Feelings. And that is the movie... Uh, we went to see it because we, your buddy, Wesley Morris, gave it a rave review in the he, New York Times. Wesley Morris, is not number one, is not my buddy, but he did give it a rave review. That's not why we saw it, but he did give it a rave review. He encouraged and us. He gave, yes, he gave it a critic. Well, I'm, I'm saying to myself, how could Wesley Morris likes this movie? Because usually he's got a pretty narrow lane of what he likes. And this was outside of that lane. And I said, well, I don't know. And it has Julia Louise Dreyfus, who went to the same high school you went to. Uh, After I paved the way. Which makes her the second funniest person to go to that uh, girls' <laughs> high school. and uh, But there's a large gap. And uh, to uh, Tobias uh, Menzies, who uh, we saw as sort of the anti-hero in uh, Outlander. Yes. <laughs> He's the villain. <laughs> I, you know, after watching him in Outlander, yeah. I never wanted to see him again. Right. <laughs> he okay? was, was he plays a horrible, horrible guy. He's a very effective guy. actor. And, and I did look him up, and he's he's been in a thousand things. I mean, talking about a working actor, oh my God. You know, yeah. so we're, we're, we're basically uh, not giving him all his due. He's been in a million things. We happen to see him in Outlander. Uh, and, and the premise and, and the advertising line in this movie, and the way it's previewed when you sit and see the previews, is that uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus plays a writer in New York, and uh, she's uh, happily married to her husband, a therapist played by Menzies, and uh, everything's uh, going swimmingly. And then by accident, uh, she overhears her husband talking with his friend about her latest book and saying, uh, in contrast with what he's been telling her, that the book's terrible. And she's devastated by this. And, you know, and, and that's what the, the movie spins around. And it's a, a, you know, a comedy of sorts. I think it's supposed to be. But a comedy of manners or, you know, with some serious premise there. How does one manage well, yeah, this, the, this sticky situation? Well, the, the idea is about little white lies that you tell. Right. With the hope of benefiting right. someone, right. and there, there's also a subplot involving their son. Well, there, there, there are fourteen subplots, but I think subplots a kind word for it. There, there are fourteen well, things. Well, it's going also on. about you know what you tell your kid about their abilities. Well, yeah, yes, 
You know, well, there are variations on their the potential right. and their genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, and, we'll get to that. There's, yeah. some, there's some real confusion about the difference between being married to someone and having a child. It's, somehow, people making this movie don't seem to understand. But in any event, uh, what do you think of the film? Is where we start with this. I thought uh, it was a little thin. It was a little thin. Yeah, and it was um, not always tremendously entertaining. Well, you're being kind today. <laughs> Being kind today, yeah, it was uh, it was about as small a movie as you could possibly have, um, too small. And and here's the thing: what, what I said to you when we walked out of the theater, other than saying that you clearly are the funniest person ever to graduate Holton Arms, uh, uh, is that um, it reminded me of a Woody Allen movie uh, without the jokes, without any humor, <laughs> and and. Uh, and I happened to look up the background of the woman who wrote and directed, who apparently is quite well liked in the industry as an indie filmmaker, a woman named Nicole Holofsener. And it turns out that she uh, was brought up in New York for, for peace. But at an early age, when her uh, mother remarried, she went to California. Her stepfather was in the movie business. And she spent a number of years, even as a young person, working on Woody Allen movies. <laughs> so there, it's no accident that I saw right. it that way. I mean, it was this, all set this, up that way. And this you're, does seem like yeah. a, a person from L.A. Yeah. Some fond memories yeah. of the New York uh, community right. or something. I mean, it's, uh, you know, in, in some ways a love letter to this uh, particular right. upper middle class New York lifestyle. Yeah, it's a mythical upper middle class. Uh, yeah, I yeah, mean... Right. I mean, but but again, the key thing being without the humor. Now, now I understand that uh, Woody Allen is uh, terribly unpopular, and uh, we're not going to celebrate Woody Allen unless we get in trouble here. But uh, I have to say, uh, he was funny, okay? And the movies were funny. I may have thought they were funnier than you did. Yes, but, but, yeah, yeah. You need. I think you need to be right. a New Yorker or a would-be New Yorker. To really All right, get but, but into Woody Allen. Let me just say, without or this film. Well, no, 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 no. Don't. But, but this film is miles from Woody Allen. Okay. The right. point is, a lot of people thought those films were funny. But, 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 but what but I'm saying is, this very, film is not funny. It's very, but it's very insular. It's oh, it's, oh, it's well, you know, it's, it's only going to be meaningful or remotely funny if uh, you really value no, the no, same no, things. No, 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 Tamsin, Tamsin. No, I, I got it. You got to parse this a little bit here. Yes. The Woody Allen films are insular, and this film is insular, and it, it suffered. They both suffer from that. But what saved the Woody Allen films were they were funny, at least funny to a lot of people. And this film is funny to no one. Okay, this film is not funny. When we walked out of the theater, we spent fifteen minutes saying, "Well, here was an interesting setup. Uh, they, here's how they could have made this funny." And fifteen minutes, we figured out our three or four scenes could have been funny, but. Apparently, the people making the movie didn't know how to do that or felt that it was beneath them to do that. I don't know what it was. But as a result, the film was tedious. Yeah. Do you agree you know, with that? You know what was a, a mark of it was that uh, at the end of the film, um, we usually take a pretty long time to get out. Right. For some reason, you like to read every credit. No, I have no idea I why. want to know who the best but, boy is. <laughs> but... Um, um, this time we left actually before we got all the way, it scrolled all the way to the end. And when we left, the theater was quite empty. I mean, people zoomed out. They, they couldn't get out. I think yeah. they have left during the, the, the movie. Maybe. I mean, it could well have been. Well, look, just to, 
The thing and the is, thing is, in this area where we live, yeah. there are plenty of people... It takes them a long time to no, get up. <laughs> there are plenty of people from New York right. who have yeah, but Tamsin, relocated to New this York. area. This movie wouldn't make sense to people from Mars. I mean, you couldn't... To give you an example, it, let me put it this way. If you take the humor out of the film, what you're relying on, I suppose, is the notion that the characters are going to resonate in a way that they're quite real and resonate with your own experience, and the film will be meaningful on that level. This film didn't work that way, because these characters were not real people. Not only were they not able to navigate the uh, completely navigable question of white lies, they couldn't speak to each other. There wasn't a single character in the, in the movie who could talk to another person about Anything. Are you saying that the actors didn't have chemistry with each other? No, I'm saying the script was horrendous. And, <laughs> I mean, let me, I'll just give one scene and we'll move on, okay? And this, this goes back to your point at the beginning. At one point, they go home, uh, the couple, uh, Tobias uh, Menzies and Julia Louise Dreyfus, after going to dinner for their anniversary. And their son is there. Whose son is in college or something like that? Maybe just no, out of college. Yeah, he's twenty-three. Okay, that kid would have had trouble getting through college at twenty-three. But in any event, he's talking to them, and he says to them, "Well, you had a nice dinner." Yes, he says to says to them effectively. I don't remember the exact dialogue that he feels excluded, that he was not invited to their dinner, and Julie Louise Dreyfus says, "It's our anniversary," and he says something like, "Well, that's the way you guys are." You always, the two of you, and I don't, you don't include me or something like that. He literally says that to them. And number one, remarkably, that scene goes through without a single laugh. How they do that, I don't know. And number two, she's stymied. She doesn't know how to respond. As opposed to saying, obviously, honey, I have a romantic relationship with your father. Okay. <laughs> All right. You and I have a different kind of relationship. Surely you appreciate this. You have a living girlfriend. All right. It can't be that hard, right? Perhaps we could have dinner some other time. <laughs> Tuesday, lunch. I mean, <laughs> really, how hard is it? And then on top of that, the, the father, okay, is so, is not, I can't even figure out what to say. He's a therapist. The man's a therapist and he can't say anything. So to, to your point about insularity, though, the most horrific thought is that people outside of New York will watch this film and think that there are people in New York who can make a good enough living to live in these nice apartments in New York and have nothing on the ball and know nothing and be able to do nothing. And they're able to navigate their lives, you know, which is just not true, but uh, puts a negative spin on, on, on New York. So um, really disappointing. And uh, listen, I know some people like the movie. It's one of those deals. I don't know. You might say this is a red flag or not. Look at Rotten Tomatoes. Critics, 90 90% like that, 92%. Audience, 60. On Rotten Tomatoes? Yeah, no. which is a huge gap. And it's not making any money at the box office, but you know, it's not supposed to. It's a narrow right. audience. Onward and upward. Onward. So the other film we saw was uh, streaming. We're able to do that. We streamed. And uh, we streamed in Bruges. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Thank you. In Bruges. Bruges How being... How you pronounce it? In Bruges? I, I, I'm capable of a lot of pronunciations, honey. Okay, I'm doing the best I can. How would I they can. do that in the original Yiddish? <laughs> I don't know, but there's Flanders I would get to before I would get to Yiddish, okay? Flemish, you mean? Flemish. Flemish is what they speak in well, Flanders. We love Flemish. We love Flemish. Flemish yeah. and Flanders. I'm on to yeah. this. So Bruges is in Belgium. Am I right there? 
Yes, I am. And uh, <laughs> the movie takes place in, in Bruges, in Belgium. And what's interesting about it uh, is that, well, it's just very strange. Well, it's an plot. old movie. Yeah, it's 10 years old or 12 right. years old. And it's, uh, it's about two hitmen uh, played by uh, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. And uh, it's an odd, it's almost too difficult to describe the plot. It's an odd situation. Um, but it's kind of offbeat and quirky and funny and a little violent at the same time. Uh, and what I remember the movie being famous for and people saying at the time, it's interesting in part because you get to see Bruges. Bruges being a destination. Right, that was um, back in the time. Suddenly, you know, especially Americans were beginning to notice Bruges, mm-hmm. which is a super charming, you know, medieval little city that uh, we've been to. In fact, we stayed at the hotel where Colin Farrell stayed. Right. They had rebuilt it afterwards. Well, we went after <laughs> they the movie. repaired it. But we hadn't seen cleaned the movie. Cleaned it up. But we, you were excited when the movie came out. We didn't see it at the time because there's a lot of art that's associated with Bruges, I believe, and a lot of history. And and it's interesting that you get to see a lot of that in the film, even though the film is not a travelogue film. Uh, but they they do Except show Except they do some sightseeing. They do a fair bit of sightseeing. Yeah, they with Colin Farrell grimacing the entire time, like, oh my and God, we're seeing this. To the end. It's like me. And that was one of the nice things about it. Even at the end, you know, usually these films, you know, there's some knucklehead who, you know, doesn't want to see something or do something. And then he does it and he sees the light and now he's a believer. Not this guy. You know, <laughs> he still hates I'm, a, I'm with him. I'm with him. You know, still hates these old buildings at the end of the film. As much as he did. Now, you like this movie. I like the movie. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say I loved it, but I liked it. It was interesting. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, but it was very, to me, engaging. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, um, it wasn't sugar-coated or... Well, it definitely wasn't sugar-coated. You know, or dressed up. It was, uh, you know, uh, kind of real in a, in a very... Um, Ridiculous way. Yes. Well, that's the deal. So this is a Martin McDonough movie. And Martin McDonough's films um, have uh, have that sort of aspect to it, that they set up kind of odd scenarios and often violent scenarios. But underlying all this is some kind of ethical dilemma where the characters are working through what they think is a strict moral code, which leads them to take sort of bizarre actions. Right, so much better than Master Gardener. I cannot even begin yeah, to tell you. Let me just say something about Master Gardener. It was funnier than you hurt my feelings. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so you can't put Master Gardener down. Um, the uh, but so Martin McDonough is kind of a uh, genius. All right, I mean, how people do this, I don't know. Because he's he has written some great plays that we've seen. Mm-hmm. In New York, he wrote The Beauty Queen of Leanne. Uh, he wrote A Skull in Connemara, which we saw roundabout, and he Crippled the Mystery. He wrote a, a bunch of plays, five or six plays, which are, you know, were successful, well thought of plays. And then he turned to screenwriting and uh, he wrote Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. It's a film that we saw that was quite well liked and we liked it. And interestingly, he, saw, he wrote The Banshees of Insurance. And um, 
that movie was nominated for Best Picture, as was Three Billboards. And that's a you know movie released in late last year, which will, I guess will probably catch up screening. And the stars of that movie are, guess who? Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Uh, so uh, I assume it's going to be right up our alley. Um, and, and just to finish Martin McDonough, he's also his romantic interest is Phoebe Waller-Bridge of Fleabag. So, you know, he's, he's got it all going on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's a very interesting guy. And his, his films and his plays are interesting. Mm-hmm. And how many people are there who are successful playwrights and successful uh, screenplay writers? You made an interesting point um, about um, why he writes screenplays. Yeah. Yes, he's something you read from yeah, an interview. Yeah, an interview with him. He said he prefers screenplays, and which is, sounds counterintuitive because you always read people saying, you know, if only I could stay in the theater, but I have to support my habits, so I do things like TV and film. And he says, no, 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 I prefer screenplays. He said, I, I, look, I understand, you know, the that theater can be compelling, but you know, uh, when I'm writing theater, I'm writing for people who can afford a hundred dollar ticket. And uh, that's not who I'm trying to reach. I'm trying to reach a much broader audience than that. And uh, that's why um, I'm much more drawn to writing screenplays. And uh, he's been successful doing that. So we will see uh, Banshee's insurance. And uh, we enjoyed uh, In Bruges, even though. I thought you'd be put off by the, by the violence. I mean, Well, it is dark, but, uh, you know, it was... In my mind, engaging and interesting. Yeah. All right. Good. Um, you know, Ray Fiennes is in it too. Ray Fiennes is always great. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. He always yeah. brings something. An awful guy in it. He, he's often an awful guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's often an awful guy. Yes, he specializes in that. Yeah. But uh, so we recommend that. We'd like to recommend things. We don't want to be negative, right? That's not us. No. It's not the kind of people we are. Okay. So, but speaking of uh, in Bruges, um, there was an article which mentioned a uh, in the journal just last week, which focused in large part on an artist who spent most of his career in Bruges, and that would be uh, Jan van Eyck. Am I getting that pronunciation yep. right? Jan van Eyck, uh, a leading innovator of art in the Netherlands. And this article in the journal, the theme of this article, well, it's, a, it's about a book called The Other Renaissance by Paul Strathern. And uh, called The Other Renaissance, he's talking about the Northern Renaissance in effect because what he's, his thesis is that when people talk about the Renaissance, they're talking about what he views as Southern Europe more than anything else. But... Like his, Michelangelo, et cetera, and so forth. Leonardo right. da Vinci. Right. This is your department. Speak up. No, no go ahead. No, go ahead. absolutely. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear what you have to say. But he says, you know, how could you ignore Northern Europe during the Renaissance, because there were great achievements in the Renaissance outside Italy, namely the printing press, Protestant reforms, and the sun-centered model of our planetary system. Well, uh, northern uh, Italy. And, he, and, and, and then he goes back to Von Eich, who he, he, he credits with developing uh, oil painting. Which no, I he think doesn't. He, he says that Vasari credit credited him okay all right no one's saying no one's still clinging to that idea no one's clinging to that no it's no, unclinged <laughs> right he, people have been relieved he, of that he was one time. of the masters uh one of the early masters of oil painting he did not as far as i know 
invented. All right. All right. Okay. But in any event, so there you go. I mean, you agree with that? That the, the Northern Europe. I have always loved the Northern Renaissance. Oh, okay. Uh, They're catching and, up with you, Kevin. Yeah, you know, it took me a while to come to grips with the, the Southern Rena- Renaissance. Actually, I, I was uh, on it right my, away. So. My first love was the Northern Renaissance. Really? You, yeah, you have, um, especially the paintings. Uh, I, I was not um, raised Catholic. Yeah. And uh, the intricate, uh, you know. Um, Sort of symbolism. Well, I mean, we just uh, focused on uh, the North as, you know, Protestant. Um, mm-hmm. So there is that. But uh, sort of the religious uh, sort of iconography, etc., was fascinating to me um, in Northern painting. Mm-hmm. And uh, for starters, the, the idea that there's, you know, there's a visual delight, just an aesthetic appeal mm-hmm. Um, but there's also layers of sort of uh, investigation and translation, which you know we discussed last time. I like that kind of thing. So um, you know, I, and the uh, the sort of um, and the oil painting and the luminosity that uh, it lends mm-hmm. to the works is just again visually a delight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it took me it took me a long time to get um, the Italian painters. I do now. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like the way you said that. <laughs> Giotto is my guy. All right, all right, good. Uh, but uh, yeah, um, yeah, uh, that was, would seem to be a pretty interesting book to read. Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, what was it called? It was called. The Other Renaissance. The Other Renaissance by Paul Spatter. The Other Renaissance. All right. So from uh, the sublime to the uh, more mundane. You previewed last week, uh, there was an article coming out in the Times about uh, the restaurant industry and how the restaurant industry is strong. Well, you know, one thing, watching that uh, silly movie... You hurt my feelings. Yeah. They were in some beautiful restaurants. Right. Yeah. You know? Was, and, again, uh, I don't know on what planet that was I don't know. On. Yeah, because there were like eight to ten feet between tables, right. which simply doesn't happen. And the, what, in, the lighting was wonderful, and they were sitting there having a leisurely, enjoyable dinner, and... Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's um, crazy. I don't know where Where they were. were those people? And uh, so, yeah, um, restaurants seem to be struggling yeah. at the moment. And, uh, re- you know, restaurant goers are struggling. Uh, prices have gone up dramatically. Right. We, we were at uh, a neighborhood restaurant last week yeah. and uh, ordered the fish special. And it, a neighborhood, you know, restaurant... Just not that much different from, you know, a nice place to get a burger yeah. and it's a draft a, it's beer a glass of it's wine. It's like chilies. Okay? It's like it was $48 for the fish Well, well So here was the thing about that. Okay, so let, let me get back to that in a second. So the article was about difficulties with restaurants. Profiles or starts with the focus on the family. The last time they went out, things unraveled. The queso arrived, but the chips did not. The servers delivered enchiladas. They didn't order. When they complained, their waiter shrugged. The bill came to more than $50. They, they just had a bad time, so I haven't been going out. So we go to this place, and we, we go out fairly regularly, but to, to not big-time restaurants. And we're out here, you know, in the exurbs. And this place is a just a step above a burger and beer place, and it's fine. Uh, and 
we ordered the fish special without a thought of what it costs. And uh, as you said a moment ago, they don't. Well, number one, they don't tell us what it costs. Uh, the guy's special. Number two, when the bill comes, it's forty eight dollars. And and look, we don't care. So about so anyway, so uh, you know, my point is yeah. that uh, prices have gone up dramatically. So that's one thing yeah. we're facing. Yeah. You know. Um, and I understand that costs have gone up right. for the restaurateurs, but in terms of uh, going to a restaurant, the prices have gone up. But also, service has really gone downhill. Right. Yeah. And uh, there were all kinds of extraordinary measures taken during um, uh, COVID to reduce service. Right. Partially reducing cost, but also to reduce contact, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, but now service has not come back. Prices have gone up. Right. People have have come back. Masks are off, but there's uh, uh, a real yeah. people are uh, seem to be distressed about the service. And there was an article in the New York Times, uh, a little bit about what restaurants are trying to do. To well, persuade people to come back, very little bit, um, but <laughs> they didn't really have any ideas. No, I mean uh, part well, of the, part of the problem is that uh, it's uh, hard work being a wait person mm-hmm. uh, and not really that well paid. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, so, so the whole thing's a puzzle, and maybe the answer is that there'll be fewer restaurants. I don't know what the answer uh, is. The Times doesn't know what the answer is. Uh, at one point, they throw up their hands. Well, they don't throw up their hands, but they end up talking to somebody who says, well, look, let's not worry about the diners. Let's worry about the staff. And if we uh, make the staff happier, then everything will be happier. Then everybody will be But the be priority happy. ought to be the diners. As a matter of fact, some of the diners are abusive. They snap their fingers or something. Well, I haven't seen anybody snap their fingers. I, I, uh, the truth is, uh, restaurants going to have a hard time unless they come up with a different way to, to make a an appealing offering. And the thing about the $48, just to be accurate, I don't care what they charge. All right. Um, but if I was a young couple, I would. And and, and if, if the solution is to say, well, we got to up the checks. So we're going to talk about a special. We're not going to tell people the price. And it's going to be tremendously out of keeping with everything else we charge, which is what this felt like. And that way we'll get ourselves an extra $15. You can't do that to people because people feel like they've been had. Well, I, I said to you... It wasn't that long ago that people did make a big stink about, uh, you know, not hearing the yeah. price yeah. for yeah. the specials when the waiter gives the specials. And uh, then for a while, it was the thing. Yeah. People would recite the specials right. and tell the price with each one. Now they're sliding by it. But let me say, people have already voted with their yeah, feet. The places, there no, were no young well, people right. there no in young the people. restaurant. Yeah. And okay. you can't... Right. Right. And, and, and uh, the thing that worries me is that uh, we need some new, interesting, creative, inventive, welcoming right. restaurants. And uh, the costs are so high. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it, it's hard for you to imagine um, young, creative, uh, aspiring but chefs, etc., getting succeed, into this business. But you could succeed if, if, you, if you went about the right way, I do think. so. But it... But it it's, it's no small service is no small thing. No, you you can make a good meal at home. Yeah, but part of the reason you go out yeah. is to have a seamless, comfortable, right. 
welcoming right. experience. But you want to see the restaurant, the restaurant making an honest effort to provide you that. Yeah. Uh, and when, when you don't see that, it's and pretty off-putting. We're happy. We're happy to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. We are absolutely happy to pay for right. it. But uh, it ain't there. Well, look, if that's a tough one. The other tough one, although it's a very different article in the Times, is movie theaters. And I feel, I was reading an article I've read every six months, which is how movie theaters are struggling to, to, to attract people back into uh, the theaters, as opposed to watching movies at home or not watching movies at all. And how are they doing that? And here's what the Times says. Cinemas were already upgrading before the pandemic. Cushier seating, bigger screens, better sound equipment, tastier food and beverage options. And now they're building on that with things like uh, service that you can press a button for waiter service, seats that move in sync with the movie's action, provide special effects like a blast of hot air during windy scenes, uh, <laughs> you know, amusement park rides in the lobby for the kids, all kinds of crazy stuff um, for which they'll charge. Uh, but all the efforts and experiments that movie theaters are undertaking to get people back. Maybe they'll succeed, maybe won't. I mean, obviously they recognize they have to do something, right? Yeah. And But you know what really works? And the only thing that has worked is a, a movie like the Super Mario Brothers movie, which everybody went to see apparently who had young kids, and the movie theaters were full for a week or two weeks or three weeks uh, without any wind in people's faces. Uh, so, uh, maybe that's what they need. I don't know. But, uh, they have all kinds of pictures here of chopped salads being delivered and, uh, you know, bartenders making drinks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, of course, have never seen a theater like that. But... Uh, nor do I really want to. I think that's going to be, uh, distracting. Yeah, I think it's... From for, the experience. I think it's for young people. I don't, I don't need all that. No, I don't need that either. Well, you want to... And, and I don't think generally people do because... Most of the movie theaters we were going to, yeah. what is the one thing that was always empty? What? The uh, snack bars. Right. We, we went to a couple of those. We used to go to a couple of those big complexes with right. tw- 20, and they were closed, 25. they closed certain snack and, bars. And uh, yeah. they had all these different setups for the snacks and drinks. And they would end up, you know, closing them down, not utilizing it's, it's them. It's not clear it's because people weren't using them or they couldn't staff them. I, I, I was never clear on that. Back in the heyday, I, I, you know, it's, I know. I, um, and it's not like there were, I remember huge lines at the one snack bar they did have. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know what the deal is. You're with thinking that. of Hamilton, right? Yeah. But the, anywhere, you know, anywhere you would go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, I'd rather, always even, put it this way. You know, Restaurant's tough. I'd rather run a restaurant than a movie theater. I mean, uh, you know, that's tough. The movie theater business is tough. What, Especially right now. Yeah. and the movie, Maybe it's the movies we see, but you're always saying, I hope this movie theater stays in business. Uh, and, the uh, and several of them have not. Right. Well, the ones we go to are not Yeah. Profit. Hamilton is gone. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we used to go to a little place up here in Flemington on is, 202. Is that close? Oh, many years ago. Yeah. Is that right? Oh, yeah. There's oh, my CBS God. there now. Oh, no. I know, I know the one you're talking about, but there's still one in, uh, what's it, High Something or whatever. Uh, yeah. That's in a totally different direction. Yes, but, yeah. but, but okay. I know. Well, you know I don't know directions, but uh, it's nearby. Okay. Uh, and finally, since we're talking about, uh, we did mention briefly serving drinks, snacks, and this included, I should have said, alcoholic drinks in movie theaters. There is a controversy, sort of, and it's, it's, it's sort of lame. Uh, in New York, uh, you're not allowed to sell wine at Wegmans, the Times says. 
uh, or any other supermarket. Apparently, you can sell beer in New York supermarkets, but not wine. And uh, yeah, why is that? The whole well, the whole rest of the country. You've asked the right question, be, and yeah. the answer is no one knows. And there are legislators in New York who are interviewed for this article, and they are saying, "Oh, we're studying the issue." And if you ever wanted a lesson in like uh, how awful state legislatures are and how uh, people lobby and uh, the political process is, is horrible and all that, you'd read this article because there's nothing, there's no reason not to do it. Uh, and, you know, all kinds of uh, special interest groups are weighing in and, and, and including Wegmans, who's spending money hiring lobbyists saying, this is crazy. Why can't we sell wine? And there is no reason. But uh, that doesn't stop. Uh, you know, the law from... from you bring this up because we do buy wine at Wegmans That's why in we New Jersey. live outside of New York because we can't stand that law. We want to buy wine at Wegmans. I, they have a pretty good selection of wine. I know the no, they don't. They, they, if, when you need an emergency cheap wine, I mean, what I buy That's there... That's what I mean by good selection. Yeah, okay. What I buy there is usually... They, they used to have, yeah. uh, seemingly less so now, yeah. but they used to have a pretty good selection of wines in a can. Yeah. And you know, and you the, mean single the smaller serving, single serving ones, yeah. yeah. Because sometimes I need that because we go out to a BYOB, yes. and, and you're not sharing a, a bottle of wine with me. You're having a, a can of beer, and I need a small quantity. I could open a whole bottle, but then you know, when am I going to finish the rest of the bottle, etc. So, um, you know, we've been, uh, I've been trying out uh, these different wines in a can, etc., and uh, you know. To some extent, you can't get those things at a nice wine store. Well, that's why so Wegmans we get is it so at Wegmans. <laughs> as, as one should, as one does, as one does. Okay, so you had a, an article which I said sort of briefly about uh, the GRE test. Well, I yeah, thought. I was quite upset to see that there are going to be shorter GRE tests. They've gone from that? three hours to two hours, yeah. and uh, which doesn't really make much difference anyway because a lot of schools aren't even requiring the GRE test uh, as part of the admissions process this for graduate, graduate school. This was the graduate school Well, yeah, school it was a whole big test. deal. Yeah. I decided to go back yeah. uh, to school and get a master's degree in, in art history. And you had to take the GRE. Uh, and uh, I needed a GRE score. Yeah. Now, I had been to business school back in the day, right. so I had a GMAT score. Right. Mm, okay. But th- that was GMATs were largely for business school. Right. You had to do, you know, for other um, disciplines, you had to have the GRE. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I actually started studying, you know, at age 50 yeah. uh, the, for the GREs, getting out the book and so yeah. on. The math was ridiculous. Ridiculous how? Because it was, you know, stupid word problems, yeah. you know, that were pretty complex oh. that I was not going to use as I ventured forth in my appreciation you know, of big, Jan Van Eyck. A... <laughs> so I, I'm mystified, yeah. you know, and I actually did very well in math. I, I, you know, I went to business school. I have taken calculus, right. you know, uh, but the, you know, it was uh, in the end, uh, things worked out because what happens is if you already have a master's degree in something else, yeah. sometimes schools waive right. uh, things like GMATs and uh, right. GREs and so on. So it worked out for me. Yeah. But now, now um, 
GREs and SATs, etc., looks like they're going to be a thing of the past, which oh. is so weird because I don't, it, I, I, I don't think SATs will be a thing of the past. Oh, SA, I, SATs are really dwindling. Um, I understand. I understand. You know, first of all, they've gotten shorter too, from three hours to two hours. Yeah. Okay, which is funny. I used to sit down. I remember sitting down at uh, one of my SAT tests and thinking, you know, I'm going to be here for three hours. I could drive to. You know, New Jersey in three hours. Well, that's, that's I lived in Maryland. Yeah. And um, so that was, uh, but yeah, I think the um, well, look, that's the, whole, the day of the standardized test no, no, but is that's really a whole different discussion. Passed. We can get into that. Sometime. Well, it's a, it's a very complex discussion mm-hmm. um, and has a lot to do with uh, a, a lot of different aspects yeah. of creating diversity or not in these colleges. And also, I think it's it, no small thing that uh, enrollment and many schools is down mm-hmm. and uh, many colleges you're talking about in, in colleges yeah. yeah and so i'm sure that people are saying you know uh, how do we make this more inviting yeah. you know if we don't uh, people are saying yeah i don't want to take that test i don't right. you know yeah. who Just, needs college anyway think eliminating amazing. standards is the way to go not to mention right. that turns out to take the gre over 200 bucks Oh, okay, I never thought about how much it costs, but yeah. Because I, you were a kid, all right, when I don't you took what, the test. Do you remember what it cost when you took your SATs? No. Okay. But it, but so, it wasn't two hundred dollars. I'll tell you that right now. You know, like didn't you remember? You thought pretty hard about just how many schools you were applying oh, to yeah, because it cost ten dollars to apply yeah, to each school. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, your parents said, "No, we're not applying to twenty schools. Forget it." People you know? do that now. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there you have it. The other exciting thing that's going on, apparently in um, the UK, bees are swarming. Bees are swarming more than usual. Okay, swarming is when um, bees uh, kind of jump up and say, "It's getting crowded here. Some of us are going to have to leave." And yeah. they they gather around a queen and they go off somewhere and you see them in these huge like clusters and mm-hmm. uh, a tree or a telephone pole or in a chimney somewhere mm-hmm. and the beekeeper people and the bee control people are super super busy you know mm-hmm. much more busy than they are other years now we're happy about this right because there's a lot of uh, concern about the decline of yeah. the bee and we yeah. need them as pollinators right. Right. to keep uh, all this great nature going you right. know um, so it so it's probably a good thing, and uh, so even though it seems a little scary, the honeybees are not the ones who are going to sting you and, and you know send you into anaphylactic, uh, anaphylactic shock. shock yeah. um, uh, so don't you know? Don't be distressed. Nice. You see this kind of thing. In I the wasn't US. worried about it at the beginning. Well, we're going to the UK, but I think the, by then. We'll, uh, when we're there, the uh, swarming uh, period will be kind of reduced. All right. Okay. So, and finally, I know here's something that uh, opened your eyes. <laughs> opened your eyes. Well, this I thought was interesting because uh, it talks about uh, extremely verbal toddlers. Yes. Okay. And we happen to be acquainted with a couple of uh, verbal well, it, toddlers. It, 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 uh, one's older than the other, right. and she is rather verbal. Yes, she's been talking up a amazingly storm for a verbal. long time. And Pepper we may is... have found a clue to this. Yes. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal this past weekend prenatal stress 
may make children more verbal. Which is weird. It sounds counterintuitive because okay. you think a prenatal stress must be bad for you. Right. But no, it's good for the child. The hormone cortisol yeah. floods your bloodstream every time you feel stressed out, yeah. instructing your body to gird itself for danger. Right. All right. Now, it can do a lot of bad things, you know, um, but it apparently can do some good things as well. Um, and it does something that uh, they think is beneficial for fetal development. All right. And in fact, uh, when uh, premature babies are sometimes given um, cortisol to help uh, lungs, brain, heart, you know, mm-hmm continue to develop as you know so it's got a lot of good aspects to it researchers have found that during that pregnant mothers who were anxious during their last trimester and thus secreted lots of cortisol gave birth to babies who became excellent listeners and talkers as toddlers how do you like that and your theory is that uh, noel Pepper's, Pepper's mom must have been under, under a lot of stress. Well, she might have been under a lot of stress she's, because... She's, she's married to Zeke. So she's married to Zeke. That's one. stressful. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Number two, it was the height of the pandemic. Yeah, that's true. All right. Yeah. She was giving birth to a baby into the pandemic. Yeah. So she had much to worry about aside from just, you know, being stressed out about becoming a mother for the first time. So, you know, the, this was a serious uh, study and they... Um, you know, they describe uh, exactly how it was done, and the, the mothers were monitored, the babies were monitored in the womb, etc. There's still things they haven't quite figured out, mm-hmm. okay? Um, some of it has, including the role of sex differences. Intriguingly, the researchers found that boys whose pregnant mothers secreted more last trimester cortisol produced more words while girls exposed to greater cortisol understood more words all right that's a little fine for me because what we're getting is a lot of words produced by pepper so uh... and the thing is that generally they say generally pregnant women um carrying girls secrete more cortisol than pregnant women carrying boys. Oh, I know. So the girls are being exposed to more as cortisol. As long as I can remember, you can say any sentence to Pepper and she'll just repeat it right back. And, and say, ba, 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 ba. And, you know, do you feel that it, you know, it's a little breezy today? And she will say, it is a little breezy today. Yes. No, it's, but it's not, just, I don't think it's just the repeating thing. I think it's, well, she uh, they come up with more words and, you know, and, uh, so, but anyway, we don't I mean, know. we had been noticing we that Pepper no is, you know, she's a talker in our minds, yes. quite verbal. And now we have an idea why. Yes. Okay. Whatever. We'll see. We'll see. Cortisol. It's nice to know there's a positive effect to it. All right. So that's what we have. Uh, and uh, we're going to go back to whatever we were doing. But uh, well. <laughs> how do you come up with these snappy endings? <laughs> that's pretty good, huh? Uh, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhop. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. We'll see you next week. Why not?